0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast.
1: Welcome to Worldview with the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Daunton. Today, we're discussing the Greek debt crisis. I'll be getting the views of our correspondents in Brussels and Athens about what the coming days are likely to bring. And I'll be speaking to Lara Marro in Tunisia about last week's gun attack on a crowded beach that resulted in the deaths of 38 foreign tourists, including three from Ireland. But first to Greece, where the decision of the Syriza led government to hold a referendum this weekend on the terms of an international bailout has left many people wondering if Greece is heading inexorably towards the EU exit door. To discuss that and other questions arising from the Greek crisis, I'm joined from Brussels by Suzanne Lynch, our European correspondent, and from Athens by our correspondent in Greece, Damian Makanola. Suzanne, this is a very fast-moving story and as we speak on Tuesday afternoon, there are reports of behind-the-scenes talks on a last-minute bid to salvage a deal between Greece and its creditors. Can you bring us up to date on what's happening?
0: Yes. um, Well, on Tuesday afternoon, this is obviously D-Day in many ways. There are two um, deadlines, if you like, today. The IMF repayment is due later on this evening and the Greek second bailout expires today. Um, So what we've seen over the last 24 hours is that diplomatic efforts really are afoot to try and secure some kind of deal um, over the next 24 hours. Um, yesterday we saw signs, kind of um, an alignment of of, uh, of language from people like Jérôme D'Eisselbloom, Jean-Claude Juncker, um, and particularly French President François Hollande, about um, the, how the fact that the door was still open to Greece. Um, but the key issue with is what would be on offer to Greece. Um, it now looks like that... M- John Juncker spoke to Cipras late last night on the phone, but really that the offer that's been proposed by the creditors is the same offer that was on the table last Friday. Um, so there's no sign yet if uh, the lenders are prepared to move on any offer. And there's now reports that Greece are coming forward with their own offer um, this afternoon. So that's where things stand at the moment.
1: OK. And you mentioned there the, the two uh, key events t- uh, today, um, Tuesday, which are the, that... Um, which are inevitable now, really, that Greece will will miss a deadline on repayment of 1.6 billion euro to the International Monetary Fund, and the existing bailout is also about to expire. Can, can you talk us through the potential implications of, of both of these developments? Because there mm. seems to be some confusion around what a default yeah. might mean or might not mean, and so on. I
0: mean, there's a couple of things. In one sense, is one sense the IMF repayment may not be as significant as the expiration of the bailout. In a sense, they kind of it's coincidence. And to some extent that so they're happening the same day. I mean, if Greece is not going to pay its IMF payments, which is looking very, very likely, and now um, credit rating agencies have already said that that might not necessarily um, mean a default automatically because official creditors own that debt, not private creditors. But um some senior people from the ECB are already saying this morning that it would be only a matter of days uh, whereby um, Greece would it have, be considered by the ECB, at least, uh, to have defaulted. And um, The expiration of the bailout, this is also a critical issue in a lot of ways because we've now got the situation where Cyprus has called a referendum for next Sunday on a bailout agreement that's going to expire this evening. Um Now, the Eurogroup on Saturday said they weren't going to extend that further um, and we saw Enda Kenny and other leaders kind of saying um, in, in reply to Tsipras uh, as early as last, uh, last night that no extension of this is on the table. And um, one reason being it would have to go to national parliaments, five other national parliaments for um to be ratified. So there simply isn't the time at this stage. So officials here are saying one suggestion could be that Greece applied for some kind of a third bailout. Um, now, that might be obviously just a matter of semantics to a lot of people, or, or technicalities, but um, that would be a big uh, challenge for Mr. Cipras. would he actually rise to that? He would probably be pushing the lenders um, to to extend the bailout, as he's, he's kept saying. Um, but the key thing about the bailout running out also is that it could give the ECB the green light to stop Um, providing emergency funding to the banks. In particular, they could um, cut the haircut on uh, what they're applying to the collateral that the banks are using to draw down the money from the ECB. So that could be an action that will be triggered by the expiration of the bailout tonight.
1: And does the ECB even have a choice in the matter? If there is no bailout in existence, is it it, it allowed to provide emergency uh, funding to the Greek banks?
0: Yeah, it's a a key question because on both sides of this you can can look at that either way. You know, some people um, who are more supporters of, of the greek position would say well the ecb you know are putting a gun to greece's head you know they more or less made greece uh, put in these capital controls you know by threatening to to withdraw the funding but on the other hand other people would say that well mario draghi has done very well to actually keep his board together on this there's huge resistance particularly from the german members of the governing council to um to stop providing this emergency funding to greece and um, it's Beyond, this they say, it's beyond the ECB's mandate, um, and definitely, I think Draghi would find it very difficult to convince most of the board and the ECB members um, that he would be justified in keeping providing this 90 billion in emergency fundings to the Greek banks if they're not in a program.
1: And so, ultimately, is it really a political decision, notwithstanding the fact that ECB is is uh, supposed to be uh, independent?
0: Yeah, I think I think one of, the, one of the many aspects of this crisis over the last week is that people are talking about legal legalities. Like, So, for example, even the referendum to the question that it's, would it be legal for Greece to hold a referendum on fiscal matters, that was something that was trashed out in the Parliament over the weekend. Similarly, there's a load of this talk now, maybe Varoufakis bringing some kind of case to the European Court of Justice. There's a load of legal aspects to this, but ultimately, I think you're right, it, as always happens in EU politics, there's the will of the way, as they say, and polit- the political will is there to secure a deal? And this is coming from both sides. I mean, it's questionable, does Tsipras want a deal? Um, would he prefer to ride this out until Sunday and kind of go out gloriously in some kind of exit on Sunday after the referendum? You know, does he have the political will and his party? And on the other side, do people like Merkel and the other Eurogroup uh, figures and the senior EU people, are they prepared to make the political moves now to keep uh, Greece in the Euro? Or amid increasing um, language here from some member states that maybe this is the time to let it go?
1: Okay. And so I'm just turning to the referendum on Sunday, and I'll bring Damien in in a moment on this. Um, as we know, just to recap, as we know, the Greek government, uh, I suppose, surprised everybody at the weekend by by withdrawing from negotiations on, on the bailout with its creditors and announcing that it would put um, the existing proposals to, uh, to the Greek people on Sunday with a recommendation from, from the Syritzalad government that people vote no. Um, and the view then that the, the Prime Minister Tsipras is, is promoting is that with a no vote, his hand will be stronger to go back to Brussels, to go back to the negotiating table with a stronger mandate to negotiate. How, how realistic is that scenario?
0: Yeah, I mean, he, have said that they're going to advocate a no vote, and they have been arguing that this will give them a stronger hand in negotiation. And um, a lot of ink has been spilled about whether a no vote would mean exit from the Eurozone. Um, how significant that is or not, is really unclear. I mean, Schäuble has just said this morning Tuesday um, that in a private meeting, there's a report that he said just if they voted no, it wouldn't mean they, they leave the Euro. I mean, technically, there, I I suppose it wouldn't, but I suppose the message would be, um, that it's rejecting uh, the uh, the programme, any kind of a programme with uh, Europe that demands any kind of austerity. But I think if there's a yes vote, and Damien will be able to speak about this more, it's quite interesting the way the media is covering this in Greece as well, But um, the the obvious uh, issue for Tsipras is that he's called a referendum that will take place five days after uh, capital controls were introduced in Greece, which means that's obviously going to galvanise more support, perhaps, for the yes vote when people, this climate of fear and uncertainty that that is going to bring, may encourage people to vote, to keep with Europe, keep with a programme, whatever the austerity demands that are there.
1: Okay, I'll come back to you, Suzanne, in a moment on that larger question of what a yes vote and a no vote might might really mean and discuss it with Damien. As well. But first, uh, uh, Damien Macanulla in, in Athens. Um Damien, last night we saw very large large crowds on the streets in Athens um in support of the Syriza government. Um tonight uh people on the on the, the yes side of the referendum, those who who, who want to vote yes on Sunday are opposed to the government in this question will be out in large numbers. Is it possible to say at this stage who is winning this debate in Greece? I think it's
2: it's still very early because as I, I spoke to two political analysts yesterday. Uh, and, and they were saying it is just simply too too early to call, and they said it, it really all depends on how the question and how the, ref, the question in the referendum is framed uh, by by both camps, and how the people will actually understand uh, the framing and how they how, how how they will see the implications of a yes or no vote. So that's that's really crucial. That's that that's one of the that that will decide on how people uh, uh, will vote on Sunday. And the other thing, uh Suzanne mentioned this, uh, is that is will be the effects of capital controls. Capital controls were introduced yesterday. Uh, a limit of 60 euros has been imposed on, on holders of, of Greek and uh, bank and credit cards. And it really is quite early, too early to say uh, what the effects of, of, of that will, will be as well, because people have uh, rents to pay, they'll have their bills to pay. Uh, uh, there's a big question whether people will even pay. Uh, a lot of people are saying that they're they won't pay their bills. They won't be paying anything. Uh, one, one woman this morning told me that she won't be paying the rent on her son's, uh, her student's son's apartment in, in another great city because uh, because of these capital controls. So the effects of the capital controls uh, will, will also be um, a defining factor. The other thing that we need to, uh, to, to mention is that we didn't have, due to the shock announcement of the referendum, which was made just after midnight on Friday night, uh, we don't really have any 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 proper idea of of public opinion. There have not been any polls published yet on 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 the strength of the, the yes and the no camps. Although we're told that uh, we may see some polls this evening, or at least uh, by by tomorrow. So that will give us then a better picture of 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 where we stand uh, at the moment.
1: Okay. And on that question of, of, of framing as well, the, the European Commission President uh, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker made, a, as we know, a direct appeal to the Greek people last night um, um, to, to vote yes in the referendum. And he certainly is clearly attempting to frame it as a question. He said, if you vote, if you vote no in this, you're voting no to Europe. How was Juncker's message received in general by, by Greek people?
2: Uh, well, it did, when I was out and about yesterday, it did come up. Uh, people mentioned this without me having to bring it up, and they were quite angry. They didn't like. They didn't like his tone. Uh, one man said to me that, you know, if, if this man tells us to vote one way, our natural reaction would be to vote the other way. And uh, there was also a lot of the, some of the language he used uh, uh, didn't didn't go down well. There was the, the, he he made this reference uh, or he appealed to Greeks. Greece. Uh, not to commit suicide if they're if they're afraid of death. And you know, that's that's not really uh as some people as, as one person put it, as if Juncker was really trying to bolster the yes camp yesterday in Greece with legislative misery because he he, he 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 it wasn't really a speech uh that was seem to be reaching out to Greeks or to to wavering uh voters um ahead of Sunday's referendum. So um but at the same time analysts do think that while the comments of foreign leaders and and foreign representatives are are important and all that. The the, the decision on on uh, what will lead people to vote will really be made in Greece. Greece is, what happens in Greece will define how people will will, will vote on Sunday.
1: Right. And um, I, do you think ultimately will it come down to the kind of agreement on that question? Because. Uh, is there still, I think, there's still a, uh, maybe broad support in Greece for remaining within the euro? So if Greeks do actually believe that by voting no on Sunday, they may be voting no to Greece's continued membership of the euro and even the euro- European Union. Um, might it actually turn on, on, on that question in the end?
2: Well, there, is still, there was always uh, high support for, uh, for Greek membership of the euro. Uh, the poll after poll uh, has shown that. So you're talking about a 60, 70 to 80% support uh, for the euro. Um, but at the same time, uh, not everybody is convinced. Uh, the government is telling them that a no vote does not necessarily mean a Greek exit. People themselves aren't necessarily convinced that uh, it would lead to a Greek exit. The attitude uh, towards the drachma is pretty negative. Uh, very few people speak openly in favour of return to drachma. They identify the drachma with with, uh, with a, a, a Greek of of bygone Greece and with, uh, and with poverty. So it is kind of a very mixed message, very contradictory message.
1: Um, OK, and Suzanne, can I ask you about that question? Because um, uh, it, um, there's the perception of Greek voters as to what they're voting on is the key issue, really. But what is the reality of that? Is is Juncker correct in framing it as yes or no to Europe? Or is he just attempting to sort of uh, make kind of... Make the rules suit the the argument that he's trying to uh, he's trying to win.
0: Well, I suppose there's there's a couple of aspects to this. There's no we don't know what they're specifically going to be voting on yet. Really, in terms of what austerity measures, what bailout they're going to be voting on. So I suppose what you could say is that they're trying to say, okay, in effect, or the implications of voting no is probably going to lead you to exit the euro, which is a pretty obvious thing. That obviously, if they vote no to, you know, the conditions that go with euro membership and if Greece defaults on its lenders and it defaults to ECB. I mean, what's crucial about membership of the euro is being part of the single currency, uh, EMU, and, you know, using Greece, uh, Frankfurt as the central bank, etc. So if, you know, events will probably be superseded. The referendum will be superseded by events really in the next few days. You know, if the ECB were to pull funding, you know, and if Greece in particular was to default to the ECB on the 20th of February when it's next big payment, well then that's going to open up big questions about the membership of the single currency. I mean, at the very least, it's going to put on huge pressure on the euro, um, if, uh, they vote no next week. Um, and we'll probably see a lot more concerted action from the ECB in terms of maybe, well, probably more, you know, quantitative easing, bond buying and that kind of thing. Um, but I suppose the biggest issue will be its political dimensions if there's a, if there's a no vote. Um, and will Sipras continue as Prime Minister there and what he will, what will be his next step, uh, if you like, because he will see this as a mandate not to, um, not to continue with the austerity programme uh, that has been offered by the, uh, the lenders.
1: OK. And um, Damien, I might come back to you on one, one, just one other question. The, the the actual wording of the referendum to be put to the people on, on Sunday seems um, uh, very convoluted. I mean, as, certainly as translated into English, one sentence from it reads, should the plan of agreement be accepted, which was submitted by the European Commission, the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund, in the European group in the eurogroup sorry, of the 25th of May 2015 and comprises two parts which constitute their unified proposal that certainly is translated is it is it uh, any easier to understand in Greek and uh, is this an issue in the in the referendum on Sunday
2: Greek isn't all of the clearest language, it's, uh, especially bureaucratically Greek can be quite bureaucratic I think the question is uh, the, question, yeah, the, the question the question the, the, the way the question is structured on the ballot paper is is uh, very convoluted, but people generally uh, know what they're being asked. Now, the, the whole problem with the ballot paper is, of course, that the proposal that is mentioned on the ballot paper no longer officially exists. Um, and the other peculiar thing about the ballot paper is that the yes box is is is, is put above the the, the, uh, the no box is put above the yes box, which is kind of uh, a bit unusual. Generally, it's yes uh, and, uh, comes on top. Um, so it is—it is, it, it is kind of a an, moot an exercise in a way. It, it, it's the proposal that is mentioned in the ballot in the ballot paper no longer exists, so the government though still sees this as having a very strong uh, symbolic value. Uh, last night, the prime minister, uh, in, in an interview with State TV, he basically said that a, a very strong mandate, a renewed mandate from the people, would strengthen strengthen his uh, negotiating uh, arm. Now, whether that turns out or not is a different question, but that is certainly the government's line. And The other thing I, did, I, 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 I should bring in, uh, of course, the, the Greek people are being told uh, plenty of things by their own government, and, 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 and there's quite a lot of support for, for the government's line here. But at the same time, the Greek media, uh, the private media, are, have taken a very critical stance towards government, a very critical stance towards the referendum idea. So there is a debate is taking place in Greece. It's quite, it's quite a strong race, quite a heated debate. But uh, uh, the debate is taking place, and I think people will uh, make up their minds based on on, on on that debate between now and Sunday.
1: Okay. And you say we should have opinion polls maybe uh, Wednesday, Thursday.
2: I've heard. I, I heard today that there, might, that, that there may be an opinion poll this evening or tomorrow. Some people also say that opinion the publication of opinion polls may be banned because this is what sometimes happens before elections. So I, I'm, I'm not I'm not 100% sure what the what the, story about, what the story about that is. But there is one thing I should, uh, just in the last hour or so, I, 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 there's a lot of rumours in Athens that there may be, uh, that there is an attempt to try and uh, um, uh, reach some kind of a compromise. Uh, there are rumours that Alexis Tsipras may be flying to Berlin or may be flying to Brussels. This afternoon, foreign, foreign correspondents have been summoned to the, to the press uh, secretariat for a briefing from the Alternate uh, Finance Minister and some other government officials. So we don't really know what that whole means right now, but we will find out uh, in, in half an hour or so. So that, there could be developments today, but okay. yeah, we we'll
1: have to see. Great. Well, we'll see what the next hours and days uh, uh, bring. And this, as I mentioned at the outset, very fast-moving story. Um, Suzanne Lynch in Brussels and Damien McAnulla in Athens. Uh, thank you both very much. You're listening to the Irish Times. Next to Tunisia, where last Friday holidaymakers on a beach in the resort town of Soos had their tranquillity, and in many cases their lives, shattered by the arrival of a gunman who shot dead 38 tourists, including three Irish people, Lorna Carty from County Meath and West Meath couple Larry and Martina Hayes. The jihadist group Islamic State claimed responsibility for the attack. I'm joined now by Lara Marlow, our Paris correspondent who is in and um, Lara, uh, can you bring us up to date first on the investigation into this attack? Because there were conflicting reports uh, in the last 24 hours about how many arrests, arrests there had been and so on. Has anything been clarified on, on, on that front?
3: No, uh, there is still conflicting information. The Tunisian government, I'm afraid, is, are very poor communicators. Uh, at his press conference yesterday, the Tunisian Minister of the Interior, Nejem. Uh, Garzali first told us that one arrest had been made, that the the detained man would be treated according to the norms of human rights, and then two or three minutes later he said several people had been arrested, uh, but that he couldn't tell us any more. Uh, so there, there are a lot, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of rumors going around about how many gunmen were there, how many people have been arrested, were there security forces who had weapons and did not pursue the assassin, and the government has made no effort to clarify these things.
1: Mention of the assassin, Lara, Cefedin uh, Re- Resquay, you've been writing about him in, in the Irish Times over the past couple of days. Um, a, a guy with a, a, a background, a profile that, that um, uh, suggested uh, normality, a, a student, electronic student, um, never, um, never in any kind of trouble. And yet, for the past 18 months, he had been advertising his um, radical inclinations and so on in social media, and yet seems to have escaped the attention of the authorities there completely. Um, Is this a case really of um, a lone wolf who was operating under the radar and could not have been spotted or should the Tunisian authorities have um, been alerted to the dangers posed by this man?
3: Uh, they, uh, my impression is that they certainly should have been alerted to it. Um, there are 80 mosques, which the government says are out of control. So that's uh, verbatim what they say about them. They say they're going to close them down this week. Uh, but the question in everyone's minds here is, uh, why were these mosques not closed down sooner if the government knew that they were a hotbed of jihadism? Uh, this, uh, Saifuddin Rezgi, the assassin, uh was as you say a normal young man he loved football he loved breakdancing he even posted a video of himself breakdancing with a, a sort of baseball cap and a necklace uh in 2010 he he was radicalized around sometime between 2012 and 2013 and his appearance changed he he grew a scraggly little beard and he started wearing the Chamis, this this long tunic that uh fundamentalist Salafist, where he started attending a mosque uh, that was um, considered uh, to be a, a jihadi mosque, um, the authorities don't notice. Now, obviously, there are thousands of, of young men in this situation in Tunisia, but from the end of 2013, everything he posted on his Facebook page and also the tweets he was sending uh, were, were quite radical, and, and there was nothing that was not radical. Uh, I'll give you an example. On his uh, his cover page is a picture of, an, of a man holding a Kalashnikov seen from the back, and, and the caption on it is, if love of jihad is a crime, will take note that I'm a criminal? Uh, and even on the day of the massacre, uh, in the morning, he posted a tweet at 6.40 a.m., which was really announcing his crime. Uh, it, he said, this is the beginning of terror, and he signed it, hashtag conquest of Seuss. Um, if the authorities were really you know keeping up with these things somebody would have noticed that and said hey uh, alert you know all stations alert in Zeus today something something bad is going to happen but they just ignored it and one of the things that is coming out of this this tragedy this atrocity is that the Tunisian authorities say they are going to create a unit specially to monitor the internet and social media. Um, this is also something that's happening in France, in, in other countries that have uh, faced this jihadist threat, that have had attacks. They realize that the internet is where it's happening. The, the internet is where young men are being radicalized. Uh, Resge was spending more and more time alone with his computer on the internet. He wouldn't tell anyone what sites he was visiting, where he was surfing. Um, so that there is going to be a crackdown on that.
1: Lara, you were in Tunisia as recently as last March following the attack at the Barda Museum in, in Tunis, in which 22 people were killed. At that time, the government promised a strong response, including a new anti-terrorism law, the deployment of extra troops in the cities and so on. And, and yet the security... Um, um, where this attack took place on Friday seems to have been almost non-existent. So do you think, can people have confidence in, in, in this time, in, the, in, the, in the, the response that the government is promising on this occasion?
3: Uh, no, I'd say that the confidence is, is weak. Although the anti-terrorism terrorism law is finally going to be voted, they, they've announced a date for it, which is, I believe is July 23rd. Uh, one of the things the law will do will crack down on it will crack down on financing for associations and groups and mosques and and so on. They're going to control that more clearly. I uh, the only explanation that I have is that the, the government was in denial about the magnitude of, of, of the threat. There is a tendency here, and, and perhaps it's just a human characteristic, to, to say, well, no, this could never happen again. This was just a one-time thing. This was horrible, but Tunisians are peace-loving people, and, and this was just a fluke. Uh, but I think after this, this time... Well, you know, will they really get their act together this time? That, that's the question, because all of the, the special measures that they say they're going to take now, they said they would take after the Bardo attacks. And, for example, the, the sort of flagship measure is that they're going to create or, or employ 1,000 more armed police to guard hotels, and they're going into uh i think it's 690 something hotels so that that's really it's less than two policemen it's really one and a quarter or one and a third policeman for every hotel now is that really if you've got uh, determined um, killers like the the two guys who went into the bardo and you remember when the bardo was attacked there were four security guards and they'd all gone off to have coffee together at the same time so uh you know it, it's not frankly terribly convincing um, some people are recalling that under the Ben Ali dictatorship, which ended uh, in 2011, they used to have uh, police patrols on the beach on horseback, police patrols, and they also had uh, quad police patrols—you know, on those those four-wheel motorcycles—and that stopped completely after the, the Jasmine Revolution. And I, I think also this is a very young government. Um, they had uh, th- more, three years of, of an Islamist, a moderate Islamist government, and they were thrown out, and now they've got a, a sort of centrist uh, coalition government. And they're still kind of finding their way, and, and they don't have this same kind of security mindset that the dictatorship had, um, but they, they, we hope that they're going to learn fast. Um, the other thing that's different this time is I think the resolve of the Europeans to support the Tunisians, to cooperate with them on security, is much greater. We saw yesterday here in Seuss the interior ministers of France, Britain, and Germany uh, come to Tunisia, visit the site of the massacre. In the very hotel where the massacre occurred, they held a press conference, and they said over and over and over, we are determined, we will not let this continue, we will fight this, and so on and so forth. And, you know, the rhetoric was great. Whether in actual fact they can prevent such attacks, uh, we will see.
1: And of course, Lara, lest it sound like we're we're beating up on the Tunisian authorities, as we know, there were a number of attacks last Friday. There was one in in France, uh, uh, one in in Kuwait, um, Somalia and so on. And um, so so this problem of dealing with Islamic State and like-minded groups and the kind of ideology they, they inspire it's it's, a very difficult, um, it's something very difficult governments are confronting, isn't it? Because you have individuals who are not necessarily uh, acting under orders or linked to these groups, but they're, acting, they're inspired by them, acting alone. And uh, um, one doesn't know where the next uh, threat or attack is going to come. H- how do you think governments can deal with this sort of new threat that they haven't faced before?
3: Well, it's a huge problem, Chris. Um, David Cameron said, called it the struggle of our lifetime. Uh, and, and it is, but I, I think one thing that strikes me here in Tunisia is that you have two different, completely separate, almost hermetically sealed from each other worlds. You have the majority of Tunisians who are a very warm and friendly, welcoming people, very westernized, the most by far the most westernized of, of any Arab country, who are absolutely devastated by these attacks and horrified by them. And then you have um, a sort of minority fringe group, who are radical um, Muslims, who do not like the West, who consider the West their enemy, who hate them, who want to, want to massacre them. And it's as if there were no connection whatsoever. And, and you know, even in, in France, where I live, you see a similar kind of division uh, between people. And first, one of the most important things, I think, is through education, through social programs, through the government reaching out, you have to break down the walls around in France, around the banlieue in Tunisia, these poor poor areas where they come from. Uh, Resge was from a very poor family, although he'd been a good student and was succeeding in his studies. Um, You have to, in some way... Uh, communicate with these people, and not just let, let their, their numbers grow and let them keep radicalizing. I think the Internet, as I said, is, is a very, very important thing. Um, uh, Islamic State recruits on the Internet. There's a lot of proselytizing on the Internet. There has got to be some kind of control of that. Uh, surveillance, I mean, over and over in France we've seen, for example, um, uh, Yassine uh, Salhi, the, the man who beheaded his boss on Friday near Lyon, uh, has been on a watch list Um, It's very, very hard. Obviously, you can't watch everybody in in your country, but there needs to be perhaps more efficiency in that sort of thing. I I don't think you can stop it completely. I think it's going to go on for for years and years and years, Um, but there, there certainly is a growing awareness in our countries, in our governments, that it is a very, very serious threat and and it has to be dealt with.
1: Okay. And Lara, can I just bring you back before we we, we wrap up to to where you are now in Seuss? Um, I've been struck watching the television on television during the week. We've seen some tourists uh, leaving and others then arriving and saying, no, they're determined to go ahead with their holidays. We can't let these people win and so on. What's the atmosphere there like now? Um, Is there a semblance of normality about it? Are people there enjoying their holidays um, as if... This had never happened, um, or, or not?
3: It's, it's both at the same time. There are people relaxing and having a good time. I was a little bit shocked last night. As I, as I mentioned, I'm staying in the hotel next door to the, the, the site of the massacre, and there was very, very loud music. And, and somehow when things, you know, should they really be playing loud music, um, you know, just a few days after 38 people were massacred here? Uh, and the, this morning I went out and the, 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 the hotel has a spectacularly beautiful garden and, and swimming pool and I, I was up early and and um, said hello to the young man who was cleaning the pool and he said, uh, I said, you know, bonjour, how are you? And he just kind of screwed up his face in, in a sort of a look of pain and he said, I'm not good. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, the, the attack. And And he just kind of shook his head as if in utter despair. And you do see a lot of people who who are very down, who are very sort of just just extremely sad. I've seen Tunisians and foreign tourists weeping in front of the pile of flowers marking where the people died. And at the same time, you see people laughing, drinking, having fun. Uh, you know, it's a sort of a feeling of life goes on. I, I had coffee in downtown Tunis yesterday with uh, um, several businessmen and, and uh, just sort of normal Tunisians, and I asked them, are you optimistic for the future of Tunisia? And all of them said, yes, they were optimistic, and, and they said, if you'd asked us on Friday or Saturday, we would have been less so. Uh, but people are resilient, and, and they do spring back amazingly quickly.
1: OK, well, on that, on, on that positive note, after um, really a terrible um, atrocity on Friday, Lara Marla, thank you for that from Seuss in Tunisia. That's it from this week's Worldview. From Sinead O'Shea, producer and sound engineer Gary White, and me, Chris Dooley, thank you for listening and goodbye.